0: Hi, and welcome to the Crime Pod. I'm Caitlin. And I'm Sam. So, this one has been on the list to do since we began, but I have actually put it off because there's so much information. So, so much information. So, I thought, what is better than the Halloween week special to do it? So, this week I'm going to be telling you the very, very famous case of Jack the Ripper. Samantha, is there any point in me asking if you've heard of Jack the Ripper? No. But
1: I have heard of him. And that is a plus from us. <laughs>
0: <laughs> You're doing great. Thank you. <laughs> so, so I think everyone in the world has heard about Jack the Ripper. And I'm kind of going to go into that of why he was so known and how he is still so known in today's society. Um, because when it actually comes to serial killers, like he only really has confirmed five victims which I'll go into a bit more as well when you then speak of people like John Wayne Gacy you speak of you know Ted Bundy's their their victims go up so so high so I think it's interesting why Jack is still known but I'll get into that a bit later so our story is set in Whitechapel 1888 so Whitechapel is a district in East London it became part of the county of London in 1889 and became part of Greater London in 1965. It's basically built around the main Whitechapel High Street and Whitechapel Road and they extend from the City of London boundary just to the kind of Whitechapel station. So Whitechapel was its own kind of place and it wasn't technically part of Greater London until the 60s. Now it had roughly 80,000 people living there by 1888. Now this had a huge amount of the population, a lot of them were working class and a lot of them really struggled money-wise. In the 19th century, it was a place of pretty much extreme poverty. It wasn't great, the unsanitary living conditions, and it actually had quite a unique and diverse local culture. Now, this was for a few reasons. This was because it actually was where a lot of the ports were, um, but also a lot of people were fleeing countries at the time. Now, the population had increased because of the growth of industry, and many people lived in cramped and unsanitary conditions. So tenements were common, quite like Edinburgh with Mary King's Close, um, and entire families often shared a single room. Now, these rooms lacked proper ventilation and diseases such as tuberculosis and cholera were very, very high at this time. A lot of the streets had open sewers and their garbages were about and everything, so you can kind of picture it that it's not the best place to live. Wages were low, however, like, un- like, unemployment was common as well, so it wasn't like people could even just work for the lower jobs, That like, there wasn't many jobs as I mentioned earlier, I kind of wanted to go into a little bit of why it was so diverse. So this was a a, lot, a bigger hub for immigrants with large numbers of Irish, Jewish and Eastern European. Now, these groups weren't, when I say like it was a hub of like diversity, this doesn't mean it was a kind of light thing. These groups often faced discrimination and prejudice. And there was a lot of tensions between the different communities however it also brought a lot of like unique cultures and traditions um, there was a huge jewish community in whitechapel there were synagogues uh, synagogues, sorry kosher food shops and loads of jewish businesses for example so as much as like it had its hate it also was kind of thriving for those people the area of whitechapel at this time as well was also known for its pubs and music halls which provided entertainment for the local community Now, on October of that year, the London Metropolitan Police Service actually estimated that there was roughly 62 brothels with 1,200 women working as prostitutes in Whitechapel alone. Approximately 8,500 people resided in 223 different common lodging houses in Whitechapel every night. So these were kind of like um, common lodging houses. I'm trying to word like they're probably a bit like a hostel kind of vibe. And that's where people would stay if they didn't have like an actual home to go to. Now, there was a lot going on in a bigger picture as well. There was a lot of social tension, as we say, between 1886 and 1889. There was a lot going on that led to police intervention and public unrest, such as Bloody Sunday in 1887. So there was a lot of anti-seminism, crime, there was racism, social disturbance, there was a lot going on. And Whitechapel was kind of notorious for its immortality. So that's me kind of summed up Whitechapel, but I just kind of want you to, That's I think that's not really mentioned, So I think Whitechapel now is not what Whitechapel was like back then. Now, there was a large number of attacks against women in the East End during this time. And people, it's kind of uncertain to how many victims were murdered by the same individuals. So there wasn't just Jack the Ripper, there was other people being murdered all the time as well. It just wasn't a great safe place. Now, 11 separate murders stretched from the 3rd of April, 1888 to the 13th of February, 1891. Now, this was included in the Metropolitan Police investigation, and they were known in the police docket as the, quote, Whitechapel murders. Now, opinions vary as to whether these murders could be linked to the same person, but five of the 11 are known as the canonical five, which is meant to be the work of the Ripper. Now, most experts point to the fact that they had a deep slash wound to the throat followed by extensive abdominal and genital area mutilation, such as a mu- uh, removal of internal organs and a lot of facial mutilation as well. That's why those five were pinned to Jack the Ripper. Now the first two cases in the Whitechapel murders, those are of Emma Elizabeth Smith and Martha Tabram. They are not included in the canonical five and you're probably thinking, how can it be ruled out? I'll tell you pretty quickly. So Emma was robbed and sexually assaulted in Osborne Street at approximately 1.30am on the 3rd of April. So she was the first. She had been hit in the face and received a cut to the ear. A blunt object was also inserted into her vagina, which ruptured her peritoneum. That's the word. She survived, but she developed peritonitis and died the following day at London Hospital. Now, Emma had actually managed to speak and had stated that she had been attacked by two or three older men, one of whom she actually described though, as a teenager. So that was wrong. Two of the men were older, one of them was a teenager. Now, the attack was linked to the later murders by the press, but most authors actually say that Emma's murder was just general East End gang violence, which wasn't linked to the Ripper case. So she is not a Ripper victim. Martha, the second victim, so Martha was murdered on a staircase landing in George Yard on the 7th of August 1888. Now she'd suffered thirty-nine stab wounds to her throat, lungs, heart, liver and spleen, her stomach and abdomen with additional knife wounds inflicted to her breast and vagina. All but one of Martha's wounds had been inflicted with a bladed instrument such as a penknife. with one possible exception that it was maybe like, I don't know what the other thing was, all the wounds had been inflicted by a right-handed individual and she had not been raped or sexually assaulted. Now it says not raped or sexually assaulted, I mean he did like stab her vagina and I think that's maybe some sort of assault. Now her murder was obviously pretty savage and there was not a motive and the closeness and location to date due to that other one and then going on to the canonical five, this led police to think actually could that have been Jack the Ripper? However, this murder differs from the canonical five murders because although she'd been repeatedly stabbed, she would not suffered any slash wounds to her throat or abdomen. Now, that might sound like such a small detail, but that was like a given for Jack the Ripper. He would go for their throats and abdomen, which I'll go into more in case you actually genuinely don't know the case. Now, the canonical five Ripper victims are known as Mary Ann Nichols, Annie Chapman, Elizabeth Stride, Catherine Eddowes and Mary Jane Kelly. Now, I'm going to kind of go into... canonical five now i'm kind of keeping it very short on them there's so much information that you can find i'm going to still give a good cover of it but you can find so much more information if you want to have a look at this online and find out some more exact things so the first one i'm going to talk about is marianne nichols the first known ripper victim and she was also known as polly nichols so marianne nichols was born marianne walker on the 26th of august 1845 in london she was the second of three children, born to Edward Walker, who was a locksmith, he then became a blacksmith, and Caroline, who was a laundress. Little is really known of her early life, but at eighteen she married a printer's machinist named William Nichols. On the sixteenth of January, eighteen sixty four, they got married in the city of London, and it was only witnessed by two people. Following their marriage, the couple briefly lodged at 30 to 31 Boulevard Street, before residing with Marianne's father in Trafalgar Street. Now, between eighteen sixty-six and eighteen seventy-nine, the couple had five children: Edward, John, Percy, George, Alice, Esther, Eliza, Eliza, Sarah, and Henry Alfred. On the sixth of September, the couple moved into their own home in Blackfriars Road, and shortly after, the couple actually separated due to dispute caused um, causes. Sorry, with William actually then moving with four of the children to another address. Now, Mary's father accused William of leaving her after he had conducted an affair with the nurse who had attended the birth of their final child. Although William Nichols claimed to have proof that their marriage had continued for at least three or four years after this alleged affair, claiming that their marital troubles had actually been caused by his wife's drinking and Mary had actually taken up serious heavy drinking and become a bit of an alcoholic and that he then decided to have an affair after Mary had kind of ruined the relationship with her drinking. He then maintained to authorities that his wife had deserted him and was practicing prostitution. Now, over the following years,
1: Can I, sorry, sorry, to yeah, yeah, that. yeah. You know how
0: he took four of the children. Yeah.
1: Like, how does the fifth one feel? I'm <laughs> left know. behind. It's well, like, this has
0: happened before. In yeah. Some cases. Well. and I'm like, why are you choosing your children? <laughs> Take and one. Well, this is what I'm trying to think. So, the first child was born in 1866 and the couple split maybe 1881 okay. so maybe he's 15, maybe about 16 yeah edward 15, would have been 16. 16 so by that age in like victorian london he'd have been working Oh, yeah, he'd be on the, the streets. streets. Uh, all right. <laughs> up the chimneys.
1: <laughs> okay, makes sense. Leave him behind. No, okay. that's
0: fine. Carry on. <laughs> no, you're fine. So over the next few years, Mary managed to get a lengthy police record, although all of her arrests were actually for minor offences, such as drunkenness, disorderly conduct and prostitution. Now, he William Nichols was actually legally required to support his wife and initially paid her a weekly allowance of five shillings up until 1882, when he actually found out she was definitely working as a prostitute. Now, once he found this out, he ceased making the payments, causing Mary to send a summons, requesting this. So when the authorities go to William, he explains that she deserted her family, left the children in his care. He was She was living with another man. She was earning money through prostitution. And they were kind of like fair enough, mate, you don't need to pay it. So he didn't pay it, which meant she no longer received any maintenance from her husband, which is why I also don't understand why she had maintenance if he had all the children, but it was a different time. Now, well, I think because women weren't allowed to work back then, so
1: if you're going to divorce, which is also, you know, against the eyes of God and the church, and it's a church state back then too, so you as a male who can work legally... Should give to your to your wife or ex wife. Yeah, that's, but then, my worked, so surpri- that's my
0: opinion. Her mum worked. I'm surprised. That's my opinion. Her mum worked. I'm surprised she didn't. But hey Yeah, yeah. Well,
1: she well, never was know.
0: working. She was working as a sex worker. So fair enough. No,
1: that is true. True.
0: So Mary spent the majority of her years in workhouses, boarding houses, and lived off basically charitable handouts and her earnings as a prostitute. Although she actually frequently spent her al- earnings on alcohol. By 1887, she had formed a relationship with a widower and father of three named Thomas Drew, although the couple separated on the 24th of October. By December 1887, Mary had begun sleeping rough on Trafalgar Square and she got employed as a domestic servant to a Mr and Mrs Cowdery in Wandsworth. Possibly because Mary was an alcoholic and her employer was teetotal, she actually left this employment just three months after uh, service, but she stole clothes worth £3.10 shillings and absconded from the premises so that wasn't great her father was informed of this fact via postcard on the 12th of July because he had wrote back to her she obviously wrote to him saying she was loving the job he wrote back to her and then the um, owners of the house wrote back being like your daughter's still our clothes by the summer of 1888 Nichols actually lived in a common lodge house in Thrall Street where she shared a bed with an elderly woman named Emily known as Nellie she relocated to an alternative common lodging in Whitechapel on the 24th of August Now, just before we get fully into it, Nichols was a five foot tall and five foot two inches tall. She had brown eyes, high cheekbones and at the time of her death, she had grey and kind of dark brown hair. She was last seen alive by Emily Holland walking alone down Osborne Street at about 2.30am. She seemed notably drunk and at one stage she slumped against the wall of a grocer's shop. Now, Holland actually, so that's Nellie, attempted to persuade Mary to return to the lodging house, but she refused, stating, I have had my lodging money three times today and I have spent it every time. Now, the two parted and Mary walked towards Whitechapel Road. Now, the body of Mary Ann Nichols was discovered at about 3.40am on Friday the 31st of August in Buck's Row. At 3.40am, this is when a man named Charles Alan Cross discovered what he thought was tarpaulin lying on the ground in front of a gated stable. Um, as he was walking to his work. However, they found out this obviously wasn't. It was the body of a woman. She was laying on her back with her eyes open, her legs straight, her skirt raised above the knees and her left hand was touching the gate of the stable entrance. Now he checked the woman's face, which was still warm, but he checked her hands and they were cold and there was no pulse. He found a policeman, PC Mison, was just walking past and was like, great, and then basically handed over to him and they estimated she'd been dead for only about 30 minutes. Now, her throat was severed by two deep cuts, one of which completely severed all the tissue down to the vertebrae. Her vagina had been stabbed twice, and the lower part of her abdomen was partially ripped open by a deep, jagged wound, causing her bowels to basically fall out. Several other incisions inflicted to both sides of her abdomen, and they had been caused by the same knife. Each of these wounds had been inflicted in a downward-thrusting manner. So that's obviously what's happened there. The police are like, right, okay, this is just a total random killing, wasn't a motive. That's when she was last seen and the police don't really know kind of what to do with this. If I'm honest with you, I, you try and find out much about the investigation, but at this, I think it's so difficult because what are the police going to investigate? We've got the witnesses who say like, this is when they last saw her. You've got the person that's found her, but there's there's no DNA at this time. So really like, there's not much they could do unless they actually had a witness or a suspect, which at the moment they don't. Now, a week later, on Saturday 8th September 1888, the body of Annie Chapman was discovered. So Annie Chapman was born Eliza Ann Smith in Paddington on the 25th of December 1840. She was the first of five children born to George Smith and Ruth Chapman. Sorry, George was a soldier, having enlisted in the 2nd Regiment of the Lifeguards in December. Her parents were not married at the time of her birth, although they married on the 22nd of February 1842. Following the birth of their second child, they relocated to Knightsbridge, and they eventually relocated to Berkshire in 1856. Now, according to her brother, Annie had first took a drink when she was quite young, quickly developing a weakness for alcohol. And although both he and two of his other sisters had persuaded her to stop and to sign a pledge to refrain from consuming alcohol, she was tempted and fell despite over and over efforts of her siblings trying to get her to not drink. Her favourite drink was rum and Annie was an intelligent and sociable woman. Someone described her as being very civil and when um, industrious. sorry, when sober before noticing I've often seen her worse for the drink. She was about five foot tall and had blue eyes, wavy dark brown hair and she had the name Dark Annie because of her hair. On the 13th of June 1863, George Smith committed suicide by cutting his throat. So that's her dad. On the 1st of May, 1869, Annie married John James Chapman, who was related to her mother. It was a different time, wasn't it? That was OK to kind of marry your relatives. Um, <laughs> yeah, sure it was. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't great. But yeah, they're related because obviously the same surname as her mum. In the years that followed their marriage, the Chapmans lived in obviously all over kind of West London and they had three children, Emily Ruth, Annie Georgina and John Alfred. Now, John was born with a physical disability and the Chapman sought medical help for their son at a London hospital before later placing him in the care of an institution for the physically disabled. Although Annie had struggled with alcoholism as an adult, she reportedly weakened herself off the drink. However, her son's disability basically caused this to reverse and she became to have an alcohol dependency again. In 1881, the Chapman family relocated from West London to Windsor, and the following year, Emily Ruth Chapman died of meningitis on her brother's second birthday, aged 12. Following the death of their daughter, both Chapman and her husband took in a heavy drinking, so the two of them are just like, nope. And over the following years, they're known to be arrested several occasions for public intoxication, though no records of like them being brought to court is found for these arrests. Anna and her husband, separated by mutual consent in 1884, And John Chapman retained custody of the surviving daughter, while Annie relocated to London. We don't really know why they split, although a police report did actually say the separation was because of Annie's, quote, drunken and immoral ways. Now, John actually also dies of a liver disease on the 25th of December on Christmas. Now, their surviving daughter Annie Georgina was thirteen at the time, and basically, we don't know what happened to her. She was either placed in a French institution, French institution, sorry, or to have joined a performing troupe which travelled as a circus in France. Wow,
1: that did Yeah, matter. I thought yeah. she sent to the workhouse or something.
0: No, she joined the circus, which fair Back enough. Then, yeah, That'd fair enough a dream for some. Fair enough. So. Obviously, they separated, and Annie relocated to Whitechapel. Now, over the following years, she resided in different common lodging houses in both Whitechapel and Spitalfields. By 1886, she is known to have resided with a man who made wire sieves for a living, um, and she then became known to other acquaintances as Annie Sivvy. C- Short a wire <laughs> sieve, like as in like a sieve? Did you just say? Yeah, but I don't think in 1888 they probably had the wire sieves that we have now. Well, they did because he was making them. Well done. yeah. Well done. That Next time you make your food, you'll think about this episode.
1: I will. I'll be like, that was made by him. I don't have his name. Yep. But hey, go.
0: So anyway, shortly after Chapman's death, the sieve maker actually left Annie and relocated to Notting Hill. One of Annie's friends said that she became depressed after the separation and seemed to lose her will to live. By May or June, Annie resided in another lodging house in Dorset Street and on the 7th of September, and an Amelia Palmer saw Annie in Dorset Street. She told the police Annie had appeared visibly pale on this occasion, having been discharged from the casual ward of Whitechapel Infirmary that day. Annie complained to this woman, Amelia, about feeling too ill to do anything. Now, after her death, Annie's death, the coroner actually conducted the autopsy, noted that her lungs and brain membranes were, advanced stage of, were at an advanced state of disease, which would have actually killed her within months if she hadn't been killed by Jack the Ripper. On the Saturday, the 8th of September, at approximately 6am near the steps of the doorway of the backyard of um, Annie's, uh, in the backyard of 29 Hanbury Street, sorry, Annie's body is found. Now, as in the case of the Mary Ann Nichols, her throat was severed by two deep cuts. Her abdomen had been cut entirely open with a section of the flesh from her stomach being placed onto her left shoulder and another section of the skin and flesh and her small intestines being removed and put on her right shoulder. An autopsy revealed that her uterus and sections of her bladder and vagina had also been removed. At the inquest into her murder, Elizabeth Long describes having seen her outside 29 Hanbury Street at about half five in the morning. She was in the company of a dark-haired man, wearing a brown deerstalker hat and a dark overcoat, and he looked a bit shabby. According to the eyewitness, the man asked Chapman, will you? To which she had replied, yes. Now, this is when, in about roughly the time, where a group of volunteer citizens from London's East End formed the Whitechapel Vigilance Committee. Now, they patrolled the streets looking for suspicious characters, partly because they were dissatisfied at the fact that police hadn't managed to catch anybody. Because bear in mind, this is, what, four murders, even though the other two aren't linked to Jack the Ripper. This is four murders in, like, a year. And they were actually concerned about that, but also concerned that the murders were affecting business in the area. As we said, it was really not a good place. It was a lot of poverty. So all these local businesses, you aren't going to go to Whitechapel. If all that's happening, you're not going to be like, oh, let's go check out the business in Whitechapel. So the committee petitioned the government to raise an award for information leading to the arrest of the killer. And they offered their own reward of £50, which was the equivalent of about 86000 in 2021, which oh. is mad, yeah, for information yeah. leading to the capture of the killer. Now, they hired private detectives to question witnesses independently. Over the course of the murders, especially the Whitechapel murders, but mainly the Chronicle 5, the police, newspapers and other individuals received letters regarding the case. Now, some letters were well-intentioned, offering advice on how to catch the killer. Some were hoaxes, some were useless, being like, why have you not caught on much? The police were like, yeah, we bloody know. Hundreds of letters claimed to have been written by the killer himself, and three of these are actually quite prominent in the cases. they are believed to be um, have been written by Jack the Ripper. So I'm going to talk to you about those three, and the first letter comes into play now. So I'm going to talk to you about the Dear Boss letter. So the Dear Boss letter was dated the 25th of September and postmarked the 27th of December, 1888, received that day by the Central News Agency, and this was forwarded to Scotland Yard. The letter reads, Dear Boss, I keep on hearing the police have caught me but they won't fix me just yet. I have laughed when they look so clever and talk about being on the right track. That joke about leather apron gave me a real fits. I am down on whores and I shan't quit ripping them till I I do get buckled. Grand work the last job was. I gave the lady no time to squeal. How can they catch me now? I love my work and want to start again. You will soon hear of me with my funny little games. I saved some of the proper red stuff in a ginger beer bottle over the last job to write with, but it went too thick like glue. I can't use it. Red ink is fit enough, I hope. Ha <laughs> ha! The next job I do, I shall clip the lady's ears off and send to the police officers just for jolly, wouldn't you? Keep this letter back till I do a bit more work, then give it out straight. My knife's so nice and sharp, I want to get to work right away if I get the chance. Good luck. Yours truly, Jack the Ripper. Don't mind me giving me a trade name. P.S. Wasn't good enough to post this before I got all the red ink off my hands. Curse it. No luck yet. They'll say I'm a doctor now. Ha ha. So that was sent into the place. Now the leather apron... Oh Yeah, mental. The leather apron quote <laughs> wow. is basically what the press had like nicknamed him at the time. But he then gives himself the trade name of Jack the Ripper. So this is the first time we ever hear that phrase. And this kind of sticks. Now, what he's talking about with the red is this was written in red pen, but it had some blood stains on it. But what he'd initially wanted to do from this letter, in case you didn't get it, is he'd actually wanted to write the letter in blood. Now, the following day after this letter is found by police, another body is found. Elizabeth Stride's body was discovered at approximately 1 a.m. just off Berner Street in Whitechapel. Now, Elizabeth Stride was born Elizabeth Gus daughter on the twenty seventh, twenty seventh of November, sorry, eighteen forty three, um, in a rural village, rural village west of Gothenburg, Sweden. Sorry, that that was a lot there. Sorry. Now Elizabeth was nicknamed Long Liz as she was given this as um, I think she was maybe quite tall. Some believe it's reference to her height. Some believe it's because of her married name, a stride being a reference to a long step. Some say she generally had a long face, um, which is quite unfortunate. She was the second of four children born to Swedish farmer Gustaf and his wife Beata. As a child, Elizabeth lived on a farm and she was about five foot two um, in height. She had curly, dark hair, light grey eyes and a pale complexion. Elizabeth became a prostitute early in life and Gothenburg police record, have records dating from March 1865 to confirm her arrest upon this charge. She was treated at least twice for different diseases and on the 25th of April she gave birth to a stillborn girl. In February 1866, she moved from Gothenburg to London. Her actual reasons for relocating is actually unknown why she moved from Sweden to England. Um, She is is known to have told acquaintances two different stories. To some, she she claims she relocated due to her employment um, of the domestic services of a gentleman who lived near Hyde Park. To others, she said she had family in London and chose to visit her relatives in the city before opting to remain there. Upon her arrival in London, Elizabeth learned to speak both English and Yiddish, in addition to her native language. She is also known to have briefly dated a policeman in the late 1860s. Now, on the 7th of March 1869, Elizabeth married John Thomas Stride, a ship's carpenter from Sheerness, who was 22 years her senior. For several years after the marriage, the couple lived in East India Dock Road, and they actually ran a coffee shop in a popular East London area. Their income was also supplemented by John continuing his trade as a carpenter. In March 1877, she was admitted to the popular workhouse, suggesting that the couple had separated by the state, but there is no confirmation. On the 24th of October, John Stride died of tuberculosis in, in the popular um popular and Stephanie sick asylum is what it's called. Is Stephanie a word or is that the actual place? <laughs>
1: I have no idea. Is it popular or is it Poplar? Poplar. That poplar. is why I confuse yes. myself. <laughs> that's that's a place in London. Yes.
0: Yeah. And the pop one is definitely. Oh my god! Why am I like this? I, I was really, like,
1: I only know it from Call the Midwife, which is ten out of ten. Thank gosh,
0: you. but I was like, why have I wrote that the sick asylum was popular? I don't know I wrote this script <laughs> a nice to Why have I wrote island? that it was popular? And I was like. People are dying to get in there. (laughs) Carry on. Yeah. In the years following the collapse of her marriage and the death of her husband, she is known to have informed several individuals that her husband and two of her nine children had drowned in the eighteen seventy eight sinking of the Princess Alice in the River Thames. Now, according to her, she and her husband had been employed upon the steamer, although she had survived the accident by climbing the ship's mast. But as she'd done so, she'd been kicked in the mouth by another survivor of the sinking and this injured her palate and caused her to have a permanent stutter. So she was obviously gloating that she survived this accident, but her family didn't and an actual victim of this um, crash, um, dr- sinking um, had obviously been like shot up and kicked her in the face. While residing in a common lodging house she occasionally received charitable assistance from the Church of Sweden in London and from about 1885 until her death she lived much of the time with a local dock labourer Michael Kidney who resided in that area as well. In addition to prostitution she occasionally earned income from sewing and house cleaning. Um, she was quite calm and a had appeared before the court approximately eight times for drunken disorderly conduct and the use of obscene language i'd be fucked at that time um, oh, I see what you did there thank you but i didn't mean it at the same time I, i'd be a, oh i'd be terrible yeah. um <laughs> she continued this relationship with this guy and this continued on and off between 85 and 88 now, on the movements of the late evening 29th September and the early morning and the 30th September, it seems that she'd been in the company of maybe one or more clients. The first of these individuals is described as a short man with a dark moustache, wearing a morning suit and a bowler hat, with whom she was seen at about 11pm. A second eyewitness account um, says that they see in the company of Wyoming wearing a peaked cap, black coat and dark trousers, standing on the pavement opposite in um, Berner Street at about 1145 now, according to a witness, she had stood with this decently dressed individual and the two had repeatedly kissed before the man had said to her, you would say anything but your prayers. Now, the cause of death was a single clear-cut incision measuring six inches across her neck, which had severed her left carotid artery and trachea before terminating, breathing, eh, terminating sorry, beneath her right jaw. The absence of any further mutilations to her body has led to uncertainty as to whether Stride's murder was committed by the Ripper or whether he was interrupted during the attack. Now, this obviously is like, how has she been ruled as a Ripper murder uh, victim? I'll go on to that later, but she has no other injuries apart from her neck cut, so people are like, oh, maybe it's not the Ripper. However, Catherine Edo's body was found in a corner of Metre Square in the city of London, three quarters of an hour after the discovery of Elizabeth Stride's body. So you're talking like he's killed two people within an hour. Now, Catherine Eddowes was born in Gresley Green in Wolverhampton on the 14th of April, 1842. Now, she was a sixth of 12 children born to tin plate worker George and his wife Catherine, who worked as a cook at a hotel. The family moved to London and Catherine was educated at St John's Charity School in Pottersfield. She was very well educated. Her mother had 11 other children, although only 10 of her 12 children survived. She herself died of tuberculosis on the 17th of November, 1855, at the age of 42. By 1857, both her parents had died, resulting in Catherine, who was only 15 at the time, and three of her siblings being admitted as orphans to a workhouse. All four of the siblings admitted to this workhouse attended a local industrial school in efforts to teach them a trade. Now, via this initiative, one of the sisters, Emma, and an aunt secured employment as a template stamper at the Old Hall Works in Wolverhampton. Now, this sister Emma relocates with Brampton and she resides with her aunt and works at the old Hall Works and continues doing all this. Now, within months of doing this, she um check myself up there. Within months of doing this, Catherine goes along, also does the same job. However, she is fired from the job after being caught stealing and she locates to Birmingham for a short while. Now, Catherine was five foot tall, slim with dark, wavy auburn hair and hazel eyes. Friends later described her as a very jolly woman who was always singing and an intelligent and scholarly individual but possessed a fierce temper. Which is always a fine trait to have I suppose. Like, twins will make you angry. Now while residing Ooh. in Birmingham she began a relationship with former soldier Thomas Conway who had served in the 18th Royal Irish Regiment. Um, the couple had two children, Catherine Anne and Thomas Lawrence. Didn't think much of names, just thought Let's call them ours, So, which you notice was such I a love common that. thing. <laughs>
1: I'm like, yeah, well, like such a John, common
0: thing. Yeah, your <laughs>
1: second, and your <laughs> <John the> third.
0: <laughs> it's such a common thing around that time, and I think the fact they've had two—a boy and a girl—and it's like, well, that's what we must call them. <laughs> yeah, like that is it. <laughs> it's like done. In 1868, they moved to London moved to Westminster, and they had a third child and a second son. He was born in 1873. I don't know his name. Thomas too? Who knows? Now, while I'm designed in London, Catherine took to drinking, which caused rifts within her immediate family. And according to an inquest testimony from Edo's daughter, Catherine, so that's why I called her Edo's, because her other daughter, her parents began living on, quote, bad terms because of her mother's drinking, which increased throughout the 70s. And her father, who was a teetotaler, found her intolerable. By the late 1870s, they just argued all the time, and their arguments became violent. and Catherine actually was seen with black eyes and bruising about her face. Now, the relationship split in 1880. In 1881, she was living with a new partner, John Kelly, who was a fruit salesman, and they both lived in a common lodging housing in um, London's most notorious criminal area. Thereafter, she began known to people as Kate Kelly. And when she lived around this area, she was also performing just like domestic work, cleaning and sewing for the Jewish community Sorry, nearby. Although she is also believed to have occasionally taken to casual prostitution to pay the daily rent. Now, she can no longer afford a bed in a common lodging house as she attempted to borrow money from her sisters or daughters. Now, she would normally borrow from her older sister, Elizabeth, who lived in Greenwich at the time. And she would a, visual, a visit sorry, socially on occasion and give her money. If she was unsuccessful to get money from her, she would normally sleep rough. Um, on the, about 8.30pm on the Saturday, the 29th September, a police officer saw a small group of people outside the um, number 29 Aldgate High Street and she saw Catherine D- lying drunk on the pavement. Now, she got the assistance of someone else and they took her into custody and she was detained until she was sober enough to leave. Upon arrival, she gave her name as nothing and within 20 minutes she fell asleep in a cell. Shortly after half twelve in the morning on the 30th of September, she asked the police officer if she could be released. He responded, when you're capable of taking care of yourself. Thirty minutes later at 1am, she was deemed sober enough to be released and she left and said, all right, good night, old cock, and left the police station. Prior to her release, Catherine <laughs> gave her name and address to her as Ann Kelly of 6th Fashion Street. So she left and obviously... She isn't Mary Ann Kelly, it's just the name she's used. I don't know if she deliberately used another um, Ripper victim's name or if it was just the name she used. Upon leaving the station, instead of turning right to take the shortest route to her lodging, she turned left and her body was found, as I said, in the corner of Major Square. Her throat was savoured from ear to ear and her abdomen was ripped open by a long, deep and jagged wound before her intestines had been placed over her right shoulder with a section of her intestines being completely detached and placed between her body and left arm. The left kidney and major part of her uterus had been removed and her face had been disfigured with her nose severed. Her cheeks slashed and cuts measuring a quarter of an inch and a half and an inch respectively vertically in size through each of her eyelids. So he cut her eyes as well. A triangular incision like the apex part of it pointed towards her eye had also been carved in each of her cheeks and a section of her ear was removed. The police, who conducted the post-mortem on her body, stated that these mutilations would have taken at least five minutes to complete. Now, a local cigarette salesman named Joseph had passed by a narrow walkway to this area uh, with two friends just before the murder, and he described seeing a fair-haired man with medium build and a shabby appearance with a woman who may have been Catherine. Now, the murders of Stride and became known as the double event, and now the police receive another letter, And I'm going to call this one the Saucy Jack letter. And it was actually on a postcard, so it wasn't as big. Now, it was marked the 1st of October, 1888, and was received the same day by the Central News Agency. And it says, I was not codding, dear old boss, when I gave you the tip. You'll hear about Saucy Jack's work tomorrow, double event, this time. Number one squealed a bit, couldn't finish straight off. Had no time to get yours off or please. Thanks for keeping last letter back till I got to work again. Jack the Ripper. Now, the handwriting was very similar to the Dear Boss letter and obviously mentioned the canonical murders committed on the 30th September, which, the, as I said, they say the double event. Now, it has been argued that the postcard was posted before the murders were publicised, making it unlikely that this could have been a prank because there's no way they would have got it the next day. Now, the 5th canonical 5 was found um, and this is basically the disemboweled body of Mary Jen Kelly. She was discovered lying on a bed in a single room where she lived at 13 Miller's Court of Dorset Street at 10.45am on Friday the 9th of November, 1888. Now, this is the different one because Mary was found indoors. She wasn't found on the street like his other victims. Now, Mary Jane Kelly was born on the 9th of November, 1880. No, she wasn't. She was born in 1863. That's the date she died, sorry, and was known as Mary Jeanette Kelly, Fair Emma, Ginger, Dark Mary and Black Mary. Now, compared to the other four canonical ripper victims, Mary Kelly's origins are pretty undocumented and it's taken me a lot to find anything about her and much of the information is actually possibly not true. Now, Mary um, Kelly was known to fabricate many details of her life and there's no kind of corroborating documentary evidence, so there's nothing to say what I'm going to tell you is true, there's nothing to tell you it's false, it's just kind of what I've been able to get. Now, according to Joseph Barnett, who was the man she had most recently lived with prior her murder, she told him she was born in Limerick, Ireland at around 1863 and that her family moved to Wales when she was a child. She is known to have claimed to acquaintance that her parents had disowned her and she came from, quote, well-to-do people. She apparently had seven brothers and one sister and was described as being an excellent scholar and an artist of no mean degree. She had been reported as being a blonde redhead, although her nickname Black Mary may suggest she had dark hair. Her eyes were blue and to some she was known as Fair Emma, although it's unknown whether this applied to her hair colour, her skin colour, her beauty or anything. Some newspaper reported that she was nicknamed Ginger after her hair again, although nobody really knows what colour this woman's hair was. Reports estimate that she was about 5 foot 7, so quite tall compared to some of these other victims. Now, when she was about sixteen years old in 1879, she reportedly married a coal miner named Davy or Davis, and he was killed two or three two or three years later in a mining explosion. Without any means of financial support, she relocated to Cardiff, where she lived with a cousin. Although there's no records of Kelly ever being in Cardiff, she was considered to have her career as a prostitute around then, and she was introduced by this profet- to this profession by her cousin, apparently. Now, no South Wales police records exist to say that she was arrested for prostitution in Wales either. In 1884, she left Card- Cardiff and relocated to London, where she briefly worked for a tobacconist in Chelsea before she secured employment as a domestic servant while she lived in Spitterfields. Now, she had an acquaintance with a young French woman who she had met in Knightsbridge and she worked found work in a high-class brothel and moved to West End of London, She became one of the brothel's most popular girls and spent her earnings on expensive clothing and hiring a carriage, fair enough. By 1886, she was residing at Cooley's Lodging House in Thrall Street, and on the 8th of April 1887, she became acquainted with 28-year-old Joseph Barnett. Now, the two agreed to live together upon their second meeting on the 9th of April, and they lived in Miller's Court just off Dorset Street in either February or March 1888. In early 1888, when they'd already moved to Miller's Court, it was a kind of small... Single furnished room, and she was kind of sick of her life by this point. And this was according to her friend Lizzie Albrook. She said that she was wanting to return to Ireland, where her people lived. Her landlord, John McCarthy, had um, later said that she was a very quiet woman when sober, but so noisy when in drink. When drunk, she would often be heard singing Irish songs. Although when intoxicated, she would often become quite quarrelsome and even abusive to those around her. Which that's why she's got the nickname Dark Mary. Now Barnett lost his employment as a fish porter and in July 1888 he reportedly um, had committed theft, which is why he got sacked. As a result, she then went back to prostitution and she basically began to allow other prostitutes to sleep in their room on the cold nights. as She didn't have the heart to refuse him shelter, but obviously this wasn't great for Barnett. Now as I said, unlike the other four Ripper um, murders, she was murdered in sight, so he had all this time. He had an extensive period of time to mutilate her body, which is why she was by far the most extensively mutilated of his victims. The murder is estimated to have taken approximately two hours to perform. Her face had been hacked beyond all recognition, with her throat severed down to the spine and the abdomen almost emptied of its organs. Her uterus, kidneys and one breast had been placed beneath her head and other parts of her body placed beside her foot. Um the bed and section like about the bed was sections of her abdomen and her thighs were put on her bedside table the heart was missing from the crime scene now multiple ashes were found within the fireplace at 13 miller's court suggesting that the murderer had burned several combustible items to illuminate the single room as he mutilated the body a recent fire had been um, severe enough to melt the solder between the kettle and its spout which had fallen into the grate of the fireplace now, as I said, Mary Jane Kelly is considered to be the Ripper's final victim and it's assumed that the crime's ended because of the culprit's death, imprisonment, institutionalisation or immigration. Now, the Whitechapel murder files, not the Ripper's, but it has also the two that happened. It then has these one and it actually has another four murders that occurred after the Chronicle 5. Now, these are of Rose Myler, Alice McKenzie, the Pension Street Torso and Francis Coles. Now, Rose Mylett was 26 years old when she was found. She was strangled in Clark's Yard on the 20th of December, 1888. There was no sign of a struggle and the police believed that she had either accidentally hung herself with her collar while drunk or committed suicide. I feel like accidentally hanging herself with a collar. Yeah. Yeah. Now, she had faint markings left by a cord on one side of her neck, suggesting that she had been strangled. However, the, the inquest did return a jury verdict of murder. But she is not known to be a ripper victim. However, she was one of the Whitechapel murders. The next one is Alice McKenzie, murdered shortly after midnight on the 17th of July. She had suffered two stab wounds to her neck and her left carotid artery had been se- uh, severed. She had bruises and cuts that were found in her body, but she had about a seven inch long superficial wound extending from her left, left breast to her navel. Now, one of the examining pathologists, Thomas Bond, believed this to be a ripper murder. Those colleague, George Phillips, who had examined bodies of three previous ripper victims, disagreed. So he was like, nope, I've seen a ripper victim and this is not one. Now, the Pynchon Street torso was a decomposed headless and legless torso of an unidentified woman aged between 30 and 40, discovered between a railway arch in Pynchon Street, Whitechapel, on the 10th of September. Now, she had bruising on her back, hip, and arm, which indicated that it had been basically beaten shortly before her death. The victim's abdomen was also mutilated, and her genitals had not been wounded. She appeared to have been killed about one day prior to the discovery of her torso. Now, this was ruled out as Ripper case because he's never been known to actually, like, completely just chuck a part of the body away. Like, he has like taking organs and out and he's taken limbs off but he's never just chucked them away so only one thing is found. And last but not least, Frances Coles. In the early hours of 13th February uh, 1891, 25-year-old Frances was found lying beneath a railway arch at Swallow Gardens Whitechapel. She was also a prostitute. Her throat had been deeply cut but her body was not mutilated, leading some to believe that she had maybe been like another one that was disturbed. Like, you know, had like been one of those that actually someone had like walked in on him, like the same with the Ripper victim. Now, she was still alive when she was found. However, um, medical help managed to come and she died kind of before they'd arrived just very, very shortly. Now, a 53 year old named James Sadler had earlier been seen drinking with her and the two are known to have argued about three hours before her death. Now, he was arrested by police and charged with her murder. And he was briefly thought to be Jack the Ripper, but was later discharged from court for lack of evidence and has never been known as a suspect again of Jack the Ripper. Now, the investigation, as I said, why the five of them? So I kind of just want to highlight a bit more why there was the, um, the canonical five. So these murders were perpetrated at night, on or close to a weekend, either at the end of the month or a week or so after. The mutilations became increasingly severe, as the series of murders proceeded, except for that of Strides, who she was interrupted. Nichols was not missing any organs. Chapman's uterus and sections of her bladder and vagina were taken, which was the only one. Eros had her uterus and left kidney removed and her face mutilated, and Kelly's body was extensively slashed, with her face gashed in all directions and the tissue of her neck being severed to the bone, although the heart was the sole body organ missing from this crime scene. So that's what kind of linked them to being like these were all kind of individual things about those cases, but similar enough that they could be the same culprit. Now, in 1894, Sir Sir Melville McNaughton, who's the Assistant Chief Comptroller of the Met and head of the Criminal Investigations Department, wrote a report stating that the Whitechapel murderer had five victims and five victims only. Similarly, the canonical five victims were linked together in a letter written by a police surgeon, Thomas Bond, head of the London CID, on the 10th of November. Now, some researchers have um, said that some of the murders were undoubtedly the work of a single killer, but an unknown large number of killers acting independently were responsible for the other crimes. So they actually don't believe that the other Whitechapel murders were one person doing it all. They believe that each of them were actually single, maybe a couple linked, but mostly single. Now, authors Stuart P. Evans and Donald Rumbelow argue that the Canonical Five is a, quote, ripper myth and that three cases, cases—Nichols, Chapman and Eddowes, are definitely linked. However, Stride and Kelly were, they believe that they were maybe murdered by the same individual, but it not being Jack the Ripper. So, suspects there were many, but nobody has actually ever been caught. Now, a surviving note from Major Henry Smith, Acting Commissioner of the City Police, indicates that the alibis of local butchers and slaughters were all investigated, with the result being that they were all eliminated from inquiry. Now, a report says that 76 butchers and slaughters were visited and the inquiry and all their employees, like, had been asked, sorry, an inquiry went in and asked all the employees of the previous six months for their details. Now, Whitechapel was also close to the London docks, as I mentioned, and usually boats docked on Thursdays or Fridays and departed on Saturdays and Sundays. Now, the cattle boats were examined, but the dates of the murders didn't coincide with single boats movements and the transfer of a crewman between boats was also ruled out. There's no evidence that that the perpetrator engaged in sexual activity with any of the victims, yet psychologists suppose that the penetration of the victims with a knife and leaving them on display in a sexually degrading position with the wounds exposed, indicates that the perpetrator um, got sexual pleasure from the attacks. Now, attempts to identify the murder, as I said, there was no forensic evidence. There's no, like, they've done DNA um, analysis on the letters to this day, but it's inconclusive. They were touched by so many people. It's been contaminated. They couldn't get any DNA from it. As I said way back at the start, why so big? Why was Jack the Ripper, why has he became this, this phenomenon almost? He's technically known as one of the world's first serial killer, but he actually isn't. But he's the first case to create a worldwide media frenzy. The legend of Jack the Ripper is still promoted by various guided tours of the murder sites and other locations to the case. Ripper tours are so common in lo- like London. I've been on a ripper tour. Samantha, I don't know if you've been on a ripper tour. Um,
1: like,
0: no, <gasps> unfortunately
1: not.
0: There's no. ripper tours everywhere. Jack the Ripper has like two, at least two sections of the London dungeon alone. I throw back, I used to work at the Edinburgh Dungeon and we covered Jack the Ripper. out. Uh, <laughs> Did you cover... Jack yeah, we way. did Jack the Ripper as like a seasonal show in Edinburgh, so it's what like it season? was.
1: What season? What <laughs> season Jack the Ripper in? spring.
0: Yeah, it was the show of the Anyway, um, for many years, the Ten Bells Public House in Commercial Street, um, which had been like what at least one of the canonical five had stayed there, was the focus of such tours. Jack the Ripper features in hundreds of works of fiction and works which straddle the boundaries between fact and fiction, including the Ripper letters in A Hoax Diary, The Diary of Jack the Ripper, which is a hoax. The Ripper appears in novels, short stories, comic books, poems, songs, games, plays, operas, TV programmes and films, and there's more than 100 non-fiction works which all focus on the Jack the Ripper murders, making this case one of the most written about in true crime history. The term Ripperology was actually made by Colin Wilson in the 1970s to describe the study of the case by professionals and amateurs. So people actually go and study Ripperology in this case, like people can actually publish Ripper notes to their research, which is an actual trade name. In 2006, the BBC History magazine poll selected Jack the Ripper as the worst Briton in history and in 2015, the Jack the Ripper Museum opened in the East London. It attracts criticism from both Tower Hamlet's mayor, John Biggs and protesters because it's a museum being like, look at all this, people pay to go. There was more protests. I'm sorry. I shouldn't be laughing and I'm really sorry for laughing. But Samantha, you're going to laugh as well. And I think maybe this just adds a bit of lightheartedness to the case. There was more protests in 2021 when Jack the Chipper fish and chip shop opened in Greenwich.
1: (laughs) It's Greenwich.
0: Sorry, but it's called Jack the Chipper.
1: I think that's a good business name.
0: People like, boycotted it. Fair. Because it wasn't okay. But yeah, I think, I think the media had a whole lot to do with this because back then the paper's the only way you got information. So they were publishing this man that goes around and kills people at night. He was never seen during the daytime. And I think, do you know, I read parts that Jack the Ripper was like you'd, he was the boogeyman to kids you'd be like Oh, well, if you go out at night Jack the Ripper will come this is what all became something so so big and the tours and everything it just became so so mental so we're not done yet but that's me kind of done with the main part of the story Samantha is there anything you want to kind of say about the case it's pretty well known so I feel like there's not much to kind of add in but just if you anything you weren't aware of or anything um
1: well i didn't realize that it was so gruesome like i'm a bit shocked at that um, did you not no it's of, like, it I was obviously known them. for
0: mutilating them
1: i know but it was the last one i was like holy moly um yes. but also i don't want to ruin anything because i don't know what you're going to about to say but i just mean like maybe we should stop calling him a him just for now i don't know if you're going to go yeah, into anything Arthur. else Yep. We're going to have a bit of a kind of...
0: It's a Halloween special after all. It'd be rude not to, so we're going to do a different <laughs> part of this segment. Part. So people can play along with us if they want, but we're going to do the suspects of Jack the Ripper. So... I'm gonna tell you dun, the dun, s- dun. <laughs> I'm dramatic. So I'm gonna tell you the seven kind of main suspects that I believe people are welcome to play along. Write down notes, have a think, and then Samantha, I want you to tell me at the end of the seven who you think is the most likely to be Jada Dipper. Now, firstly, I'm gonna start strong with suspect one, HH H. Holmes. Now, H.H. H. Holmes well, Herman Webster Mudgett, better known as Dr. Henry Howard Holmes or H.H. H. Holmes, was an American con artist and serial killer between 1891 and 1894. He's known really mainly as America's first serial killer. He lured victims into his hotel called the Murder Castle in Chicago's South Side. And this hotel had a gas chamber, a dissection room, trap doors and a furnace to destroy the bodies. He was described it's as mental. Dis- yeah, H. 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 Holmes. To just say
1: that, but it was absolutely crazy. If you haven't look, like looked into it, it was just crazy. Even American Horror Story spoofed off of that one.
0: um But yeah, definitely go and read into H. H. Holmes. He was described as sadistic. He was obsessed with death. He was. But you're probably thinking, how was he Jack the Ripper? Well, he was getting work done on his murder castle in 1887 until 1892 and the murders began in 1888, so it could be that he went to London until his house was done. Not long after Mary Kelly died, a H. Holmes was listed on a ship's passenger log going to America from London. So was he? Nothing pins him to London. Um, um, However, as a murderer, he planned and thought out his crime, so it could be that he kind of done Jack the Ripper as a bit of a warm-up before his murder castle. Although Holmes was arrested, convicted, and sentenced to death, Some Ripperologists also believe it wasn't Holmes who was executed in 1896, that his murder spree wasn't limited to the United States. So they believe he first done Jack, he then done America, and now he's somewhere else. Will he be dead now, but alas. Now, Holmes' own great-grandson, Jeff Mudgett, believes that his ancestor was also Jack the Ripper, based on a series of diary entries to which Holmes outlined his involvement in the Whitechapel murders. So the grandson inherits the diaries and said that he had actually written in a diary that he was in London during those times with an apprentice. So there's Imagine a case
1: inheriting them.
0: Ten, I know. Like knowing your grandson. Great great grandson. Yeah, mental. 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 So that's H H Holmes. Next Prince Albert Victor, aka Prince Eddie. So this is the son of King Edward and the grandson of Queen Victoria. Now, he was known to his family as Eddie. The prince was second in line to the throne when he died of influenza at 28 in a mental hospital. He was a bit of a black sheep to the royal family. And in 1970, a British physician, Thomas Stubble, published an article implying that Eddie had committed the murders during fits of insanity caused by an advanced case of syphilis. Now, another article says that the royals knew and just kept it quiet. I am shocked. Now, the family had him locked up in a (laughs) private hospital, but he managed to escape to kill some of the victims. Official records, newspaper reports and other sources, however, offer strong indication that the prince was nowhere near Whitechapel when the victims died. However, a lot of ripperologists believe that it could be. Now, it was due to syphilis that he ended up with influenza and in the mental hospital, by the way. The next case we're going to, number three, is Lord Randolph Churchill as in Winston Churchill's dad. Now, Winston Churchill, obviously, was a Prime Minister at one point, and Lord Randolph Churchill was also a politician in the 1870s, but he never made PM. He was also a Freemason, along with Prince Eddie, and I'm going to go back to the case I've just told you, Prince Albert Victor, because this is where Lord Randolph Churchill comes in. Now, Prince Eddie was a Freemason. If you don't know what the Freemasons are, I, I never know how to describe them. Go to Google, and come back. Now, him again, he met a Catholic woman named Annie. He got her pregnant and married her. This is two big no-nos. Firstly, a Catholic wife, and secondly, a child out of marriage. This is just a bad combination. When the Masons come in to help, they hire sex worker Mary Kelly to run Annie's shop while she goes off to have her baby. All sounding pretty pretty straightforward there, Sam. But instead, they give Annie a lobotomy so she forgets oh, about Lord. the marriage, forgets about the child, but Mary Kelly, Kelly loves a gossip, doesn't she? And she starts telling her oh, sex worker pals the drama, being like, wait till I tell you about the shop I'm covering. And the masons are like, uh-uh, no, no, you're not meant to be telling everyone. So they decide to kill Mary Kelly and all the other people, sex workers that she told. But who done the killing? Randolph Churchill. There you go. <laughs> Theory number four, Walter Sickert. So he is my suspect number four. Now, he was born in Germany, Germany in 19... Oh, he was born in Germany in 1860 and raised in England, and he was a very highly regarded impressionist painter who helped transform the British art scene. Ooh, la, la. In the early 1800s, he created a stir with his suggestive his depictions it's easy to say, of naked prostitutes beside the clothed clients including one painting in which the man has his hands around the woman's neck now he became a bit fascinated with the Jack the Ripper case, particularly when he was renting a room that his landlady believed that the killer had once stayed in, even though I'm like, how do you know this? How, yeah, how does, how does the landlady firstly, who the who landlady? How do you know who Jack the Ripper mm-hmm. is? No one else does. Now the experience of staying in a room that apparently Jack the Ripper had stayed in inspired him to draw a painting which was quickly a painting called Jack the Ripper's bedroom in around 1907. How do you know what Jack the Ripper's bedroom looked like? (laughs) Unless Mm. he was Jack the Ripper. Now an American crime novelist Patricia Cornwell published a book in 2002, Portrait of a Killer, Jack the Ripper, Case Closed. Now in it she describes how she and a team of experts used modern investigatory and forensic techniques to establish Walter Sickert's undeniable guilt. They analysed his paintings, compared his DNA to samples found on several of the letters, even though we've been told the letters are bad and they can't be used for DNA, and the ones that had been signed Jack the Ripper. Now, she says that there's actual DNA linking him to these. Now, many Jack the Ripper experts have soundly dismissed her claims, pointing out that most of the letters were known as hoaxes and that Sickert was actually in France. When the killings occurred so that's that one okay suspect number five as you kind of mentioned samantha jill the ripper now over the years a number of people including sir arthur conan doyle have played about with the idea that jack the ripper was a woman now the only female suspect considered by the detectives was mary Piercy. An English woman who, in 1890, yeah, who Samantha covered, was executed for murdering her lover's wife and child with a carving knife. Sam covered this case. And you're like, tell me more about her. Samantha's covered it. It's a good one. In 2006, a study by an Australian scientist, Ian Finlay, showed that it actually gave credence to the Jill the Ripper theory. Now, Finlay travelled to London to collect saliva from a selection of the Jack the Ripper letters. These letters, what's no one listening to? And experts believe that the most credible dna from them and um, it created a partial profile now as we said the findings are far from conclusive however it did suggest that the sender was likely to have been a woman however they could have been a hoax also a lot of nurses and midwives back then would walk back in their scrubs so they'd wear those kind of like blue dresses white apron deliver a baby covered in blood and then just go home so actually it wouldn't be suspicious and police wouldn't stop like a midwife walking home covered in blood it also could have been another prostitute that was maybe Not suspicious either, because she'd be out and about doing her thang, the girls would put trust in her. I think back then it was like a woman couldn't do that, but now there's been female serial killers. Women can do that, and they will if they want to. Okay, we're on to my last two. We're on to number six, who's Carl Felgenbaum. So he was a German sailor named Carl who was executed for murdering a woman in New York in 1894. Now, an ex-detective, Trevor Marriott, and a former member of the Bergershire Homicide Squad points to the fact that two merchant docks were in operation near Whitechapel and the men who passed through them were known to frequent the local brothels. He also noticed similarities between Jack the Ripper's crimes and Ferbingham's victim. So the victim was Juliana Hoffman, and it took place six years after the final um, Ripper victim. I'm going to quickly tell you what happened Juliana. So about 10pm on Friday, August 31st, 1894, Carl quietly entered her room where she was sleeping and began stabbing her in the neck. He didn't realise that her son was also sleeping in the same room, so he began screaming for help. Police came and he was arrested. Now, he was killed by the electric chair for this crime. Now, research revealed that Carl, who went by a string of aliases, like he used loads of different names, he'd been... A merchant seaman at the time, and the company he worked for, owned ships that had been docked near Whitechapel on every day of the five Ripper murders. Every single day that a murder was committed, the boat company he worked for had a boat in the area. Now, they also discovered that Carl's defence lawyer had reached a similar conclusion more than a century ago. And he told newspapers that his client had actually admitted to him to being a serial killer and that he could place him in Whitechapel during Jack the Ripper's spree.
1: Is there not, like, a, t- a client-attorney attorney privilege? Like, why is he telling the
0: newspaper? Ah, because I think he'd, by that point he'd been killed by an electric chair and he's, like, "Wait oh, okay. to tell the goss. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Last one is Montague John Druitt. So both his family and the Met accuse him, which is rough. Now he was an Oxford-educated lawyer. Now he had suffered a series of personal crises during the 1800s, including, uh, into, including uh, during the 1880s. Sorry, including his dismissal from a teaching post at a boarding school. Um, his father died, and his mum was institutionalised due to mental illness. Um, on November the eighteen eighty-eight, seven weeks after the fifth and final murder, he was found floating in the River Thames with his pockets filled with stones. Now, investigators concluded that the cause of death was suicide and that the body had been at the bottom of the river for several weeks. Now, this would have been that he died a few weeks after Mary Kelly That Mary Kelly died. While there was no concrete evidence that connects him to the Ripper's murder, the fact that the carnage ended right after his death was enough for a London detective to be like, mm, and listed him as one of the main suspects. And that is my final one. I... If I had to pick, I think Carl, the German sailor, is a very good option. I would like to say Jill the Ripper for the fact that that would be such a rogue one and actually maybe why the police didn't find the person um, because they weren't looking for women. But, Samantha, what do you think? Okay, so I think
1: the prince can be... Knocked out, like it wasn't him. I yeah, he just to up, But yeah, he he didn't. He wasn't Jack the Ripper. Uh Churchill, I don't fully get it because, like, why would he stab the woman to death?
0: Because it's like,
1: no, he, that if is, you're that high
0: up, you'd get someone no. to do your dirty work for you. Honestly, see if you really want to go into like a comp- conspiracy theory loophole, just Google Jack the Ripper like suspects. Um, Lewis Carroll, who wrote Alice in Wonderland comes up. um, Vincent van Gogh, <laughs> he's been um accused a few times. Well, did he cut
1: his own ear off to send it to the police? Apparently one of the
0: victims is in one of his paintings. Ooh.
1: Mm. So
0: I didn't, there's a lot of people I didn't even bother with attention. But yeah, that's some of the ones that I was like, okay, could be plausible. But even then, some of them are just a proper stretch.
1: Yeah. The guy, was it Carl, who ended up in the river? Who committed suicide? Yes, yes. Carl I... the German...
0: No, 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 no. That wasn't him. Carl the German... Soldier was the one that died on the electric chair. Oh, right. Because, could... but the last one.
1: Yeah. So, well, with Carl, it could have been, but probably not. And the last one with the whole he committed suicide and then it stopped happening, I don't think Yeah, yeah. Because if you're going to go to the trouble of writing all of these letters and want to get all the publicity, you as a serial killer are not going to go and feel, oh, I should go murder myself. Like, you wouldn't. Because well, that's what, yeah. You've I not think...
0: got what you wanted out of this yet. I think so I... some of the crimes that Jack the Ripper committed like, you know, there's people that commit crimes and then they feel so guilty that they do kill themselves. You hear that quite a lot, but mm-hmm. I think Jack the Ripper's crimes, there's no way that person was then going to be like, I am so distraught by what I've done.
1: Mm-hmm. Exactly. Now, I'm with you. I think it's a possibility that it could have been a woman because crazy, rogue, and back then you just wouldn't expect it to be a woman so that's how they got away with it like you said people were going about with dirty bloody clothes because they were midwives they were nurses they were this they were that I think it's a possibility it could have been it's awful crimes and like I'm not saying a man can do them more than a woman but I mean oh I actually don't know who it could have been but I do it's a think... really
0: difficult one and there's a, yeah. it could be someone that we've not even that nobody actually has even thought of. It could be a total random that didn't yeah. want to do anything else. As we said, it could be that the living conditions of Whitechapel at the time that they just died of natural yes. causes. And that's why it all cause because that's what Tuberculosis seemed to be a thing. So mm-hmm. <laughs> that's what people don't it. understand, and that's what people struggle with with Jack the Ripper, is it just stopped. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't happen very often. And it is. It's just one day it stopped. And obviously that's strange and people want an answer for it. But we'd lo- I'd love to hear who people think it is. And I'd even love more if people have suspects that I didn't mention. Yeah, um, yeah we generally like to hear anyone you think could be Jack the Ripper or Jill the Ripper or... King Ripper. Well it
1: could have been Jacqueline the Ripper I'm just saying should have just shortened <laughs> I like that. It doesn't need to be Jill
0: <laughs> I like that But then Jack the Ripper named themselves
1: Yeah Jackie You know it's like If you were going to be like I'll call myself Jack because They'll all think I'm male If I was like oh I'm Sally the Ripper They're going to look for a woman aren't they So Jack it is But it's Jacqueline okay
0: <laughs> Right Jacqueline the Ripper That's what we'll name this case <laughs> Anyway, have a lovely Halloween, everyone. (laughs) That was supposed to be a ghost. (laughs)